So think of a situation where you have this bargaining uh, cislunar space economy where several companies are thinking of going there and there are American companies registered in the U.S., right? So if something goes wrong there, not just in terms of military, say, uh, adversary countering them, but suppose they need help like the Coast Guard does. So if you do not have a space force that is tasked for such an activity, I think uh, that is something that is a strategic blind spot because it might be called upon. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, podcasters. This week's episode is coming from Albuquerque, from the State of the Space Industrial Base Conference and Workshop organized by New Space New Mexico. It's a meeting of the minds between commercial space companies and the U.S. Space Force, the Defense Innovation Unit, and the Air Force Research Laboratory's Space Vehicles Directorate, which is located on Kirtland Air Force Base at the city's edge. While I did say it was a meeting of the minds, that doesn't mean they agree on everything. And that's the debate this episode and the next are dedicated to. The question is, what's the U.S. Department of Defense vision for cislunar and lunar activities? NASA is slated to test launch the integrated Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket later this year. The Orion is designed to take humans to the moon The test is going to send it thousands of kilometers beyond the moon before returning home. The point of this is to send astronauts some roughly 385,000 kilometers to the moon safely by 2026. And some in the commercial space industry are preparing to operate on or near the moon, be it in support of NASA's activities or other commercial endeavors. Many of those gearing up to go to the lunar region believe that if the DoD remains tethered to Earth orbits, that territorial advantage in the lunar region will be ceded to China and that there could be consequences. At the conference, I spoke with Brian Flewelling. He is the chief architect for space situational awareness for exoanalytic solutions. But first up is Namrata Goswami, who will explain China's moon goals. She's an independent scholar on space policy and great power politics. Here's our conversation. Namrata, I'm so happy to finally meet you in person here at the State of the Space Industrial Base Conference. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Laura. It's a great pleasure to have met you as well. Namrata, please take a moment to tell us a bit about yourself, the focus of your research, and your book. Sure. So I grew up in Northeast India, and as part of my education, I did a PhD in international relations from Jawaharlal Nehru University. And uh, very recently, I have been invited to teach at the Thunderbird School of Global Management for their executive master's in space policy leadership. And the book that me and Peter uh, co-wrote is called Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Uh, That particular book focuses on the competition that is coming as part of the new space race. So in that book, the main proposition that we actually put forward is that the space race of the 21st century differs from the space race of the 20th century, which was a lot about prestige technology demonstration. But if you look at articulations coming, for example, from China, it's a lot about the economic benefits that 
countries can actually build from that. So that's what the book's core argument is about. I wanted to catch up with you at this conference because I wanted to get what is China's North Star goal? What is its roadmap to getting there? Sure. So if you look at China's space program and goals, say in the last 10 years, China's North Star vision, if I may, they don't use that word, but uh, if you frame it that way. So it actually is directed by President Xi Jinping's uh, concept of a China dream, which he put forward in the year 2013 and then repeated it several times. And in that particular China dream, the goal is to turn China into a very advanced nation and to become one of the leading nations, not just in space, but overall in terms of comprehensive grand strategy by 2049. Now, why is 2049 important? That's the 100th year anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. So, uh, so that's a part of their vision. And why? So why do they want to get there and what is their roadmap? So the basic argumentation that comes out of their white papers that they publish on space, the speeches given by not just President Xi, but by the leaders of their space uh, agencies, is that space is a very critical component of developing China's economic power. And the argument is that if you develop China economically, then you can actually uh, invest in its military capability and power projection capacity. And in the 2015 military doctrine that they put out after President Xi came to power, for the first time, China actually talked about out-of-area expansion and strategic uh, initiative in establishing itself. So now what is the roadmap? So basically, there are three goals that they aspire to. One is that they want to invest in space logistics and infrastructure, in which they include concepts like space-based solar power, which is the ability to collect solar energy in space uh, 24 hours and beam it back to Earth. The roadmap for that particular goal is that by 2050, they hope to achieve a gigawatt uh, capability of power beaming, which is very huge if you think about the ambition. So uh, the China Academy of Space Technology has actually put out a roadmap, which means it has funding at the highest level. Uh, if you compare, the U.S. has not put out a national vision for space solar power nor a roadmap. So you can see that they have a possibility of getting ahead in this very critical technology. The second important roadmap that they have put forward is to invest in lunar missions and a concept called space utilization and in-situ manufacturing and resource utilization, right? And so in that context, they have a lunar uh, exploration program that was first envisioned around 2002 and uh, established in 2007 officially. And so till today, they have achieved uh, some critical goals one is that they have achieved in landing humanity's first uh, lunar uh, rover landing, a robotic landing, in 2019. They have been able to get samples from the near side, and they hope to actually get samples from the lunar south side or the South Pole, which is where uh, most scientists argue are the resources like helium-3 water ice, which is critical for what China hopes to achieve by 2036. Uh, and the final goal that they have is a civil-military fusion strategy. So in that particular goal, they want to use space to not just contribute to their economy or their grand strategy in terms of becoming a very important power, but also to achieve superiority, for example, in terms of military capability. So those are some of the few roadmaps that they have put forward. You know, 
One of the most interesting moments at this year's conference, for me at least, was the moment when the audience was asked if they believe China will meet all of its deadlines to reach its North Star. Maybe 93% of the audience raised their hand and agreed that it that China can you know achieve its uh, goals by the deadlines. And that it's for the basis of you know eight major achievements up to and through 2040. You know, that's 18 years out from now. So I'd like to look at China's plan for its moon base. It's meant to sustain taikonauts, who, by the way, are like our early astronauts. Um, they're part of the People's Liberation Army. And it's a Chinese military endeavor, really. Now, if they pull it off by deadline, it will be huge. But it speaks to something much bigger bigger than major national bragging rights, right? I mean, to simply go to the moon, well, you know, it's been done. What's it going to take to build and keep a team of taikonauts there by 2036? Sure. So I think one of the critical strategic difference of China's lunar mission is not just sending taikonauts to stay there for three days or four days and bringing them back. It's about permanent sustainability. So Last year, in March 2021, China signed a memorandum of understanding with Russia to establish a research base and to exactly achieve the kind of goals that you're pointing out. So they had two very critical goals. One is that they want to establish a base on the moon for research purposes to support uh, taikonauts uh, or human uh, settlement and to actually uh, establish a logistics infrastructure which includes uh, in situ lunar resource utilization, water rice for example. Uh, Beihang University in Beijing conducted a one-year simulation exercise where they actually had students live in a moon base for a year to see how they can support themselves and the results have been published. And so this is an ongoing enterprise to build that particular logistics. The second important uh, infrastructure, if I may, or logistics they are looking at building is the entire system from low Earth orbit to the lunar orbit, right? So one is, of course, their ability to sustain presence with their space station, which is going to be completed this year in 2022, so that they learn how to live in space for a longer period. The earlier labs were able to sustain taikonauts for three months. This uh, Tianghe and Tiangong will be able to sustain uh, taikonauts for six months, so much, much, uh, much uh, longer period. And then a concept called space-based solar power, which I mentioned before. So that they view as a part of their lunar logistics roadmap. But when you put taikonauts anywhere in space, if you put them up there for, you know, three months, six months, or if you're sending them to the moon to be there for more than three or four days. I mean, we are talking about a logistical resupply. I mean, we have resupply for the International Space Station that goes up on a regular basis, either it launches here from the United States or from Russia, right? So wouldn't that mean that China is also looking at lunar resupply? Yes. So uh, one of the important technology that they are investing in is a spacecraft that's able to do exactly that. So they they actually did a test of a particular spacecraft. They haven't named it as yet uh, last year. And they actually uh, showed that the spacecraft could go up and come back again, which was a human spacecraft. Now, uh, just to remind your audience, China has actually already has a capability to send humans to low Earth orbit, but not to the lunar orbit. So they are investing also 
also in a cargo spacecraft. So one of their indigenously built cargo spacecraft is the Tianzhou, of course, one and two, which can go to low Earth orbit. But then they're hoping to build a very similar supply system to the moon as well. And the deadline that they are, have given is 2030. So in time to meet their goal for 2036. So you're correct. It's a part of that entire logistics supply. So when we're talking about logistics, I mean, are we also talking about Lagrange Point 1 and Lagrange Point 4, which have become sort of interesting sort of points of, of reaching places that are much further out from geostationary orbit, right? I mean, could you explain to me and to my audience what L1 and L4 are and what are the strategic implications of owning and operating infrastructure there? Sure. So um, if you talk about uh, Lagrange point one or two or three or four, so these are points between the Earth and the Moon that get stabilized because of the gravity pull of both planetary bodies. And so these are excellent places to, say, locate a satellite or uh, locate a spacecraft. And then you can actually use that particular location to either uh, use as a communication capability or to think of deep space probes, right? So for China, they actually highlighted the critical importance of Lagrange points uh, in 2002 uh, when Wei Wei Ring, who's the head designer of their lunar program, pointed out that if China wants to go to the far side of the moon, they would need a relay capability. Because since it's the far side, you do not face Earth, you cannot communicate directly back to Earth. So uh, just before they launched their Chang'e 4, they launched their Magpie Bridge, uh, which is their relay satellite, which is an L2, so the only country to have such a capability there. And so the argument by China is that this is a very strategically important location because it not only helped them to communicate with Chang'e 4, which is prospecting as we speak, the lunar surface, studying what is there, but also for their subsequent missions that they hope to send to the South Pole. So this is a strategically critical point if you want to become uh, a country capable in lunar uh, capability. There's quite a number of commercial space operators here that are going to the moon as soon as like next year to others that are planning to mine water on the moon. What I haven't heard from any of the military folks here at the conference, be they Defense Innovation Unit or the Air Force Research Lab or the U.S. Space Force, is a strategy to go where the space economy is about to launch to. That's not exactly their fault, as the military goes by what's in the National Defense Authorization Bill, right? So what needs to get unstuck, or do we even need to consider cislunar and lunar as part of the Space Force or even the DOD's remit? I mean, maybe it's not. Well, so if you look at the 2015 Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, which was actually signed into law by former President Barack Obama, there is a section there that says that because there are American citizens that could actually one day exactly do the things you're saying, mine the moon or mine the moon for water resources or asteroid mining, right? And so that particular act said that it's the sense of Congress that the DOD might have a role, uh, and they didn't specify, but they argued that it has a role in terms of coming to the defense of American citizens if something goes wrong, which is the role of the military, right? And so to defend American values, interests. So think of a situation where you have this bargaining 
uh, cislunar space economy where several companies are thinking of going there, and there are American companies registered in the U.S., right? So if something goes wrong there, not just in terms of military, say, uh, adversary countering them, but suppose they need help, like the Coast Guard does. So if you do not have a space force that is tasked for such an activity, I think uh, that is something that is a strategic blind spot because it might be called upon to do some kind of rescue mission or in collaboration with NASA do some kind of mission, right? And I think uh, why there is a lack of it, I think unlike China where they have in their white paper at a very uh, high level, right, supported by the state council, indicated that cislunar operation is going to be one of their focus areas, I don't see such kind of a strategic guideline coming at the level of national policy. And so militaries can only do such activity that is directed from the highest level, right? So if you don't have that, uh, who will take up this mandate, right, without such a national direction? And so I would argue that because of a lack of such vision, there is the strategic possibility that China might actually take a lead, which it's already starting to do, and then actually create the regulatory and leadership normative framework that would decide how you actually behave in this particular arena. Namrata, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura, for having me. And now we're going to hear from Brian Flewelling. He wants to be sure that the U.S. is leading moon exploration and the commerce that can come from it. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining me here today from the state of the Space Industrial Base at New Space, New Mexico. We're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And here is Brian, my guest. So good to see you. Thanks very much. Uh, Looking forward to the discussion. Brian, give us a moment and tell us about yourself, where you work, and um, what ExoAnalytic does. Yeah, so I'm the uh, innovation boffin here at ExoAnalytic Solutions. Uh, ExoAnalytic Solutions is a small business that uh, is uh, probably primarily recognized for uh, a commercial space domain awareness uh, activities that we do with our uh, greater than 350 telescope uh, network uh, throughout the world. Uh, we also do work in analytical mission modeling in support of U.S. Space Force and other government customers. Uh, that includes the model-based systems engineering and digital engineering type functions, uh, as well as uh, work supporting uh, missile defense difficult applications, tracking, uh, image processing, focal plane array processing, and, and things like that. So my role at EXO is to uh, explore various ways to apply our technologies uh, that includes collaborating uh, with other uh, potential providers of, of space platforms and sensors, uh, exploring new other methodologies uh, or modalities of sensing, uh, or working with other customers uh, throughout the government uh, in other areas where our core uh, capabilities may make an impact. And just to put ExoAnalytic into the correct frame for everybody, ExoAnalytic was the company that actually found the Chinese satellite that grabbed another Chinese satellite and moved it into graveyard orbit. Am I right? 
well, yeah, uh, we, uh, as part of the uh, Secure World Foundation uh, event, I did release a briefing on uh, our ability to reacquire, uh, after a, a pretty significant maneuver, the SJ-21 spacecraft as it uh, docked with, apparently a, uh, acted as though it were a space tug with the uh, Compass G-2 satellite in GEO, uh, brought that satellite an additional 3,000 kilometers above GEO. Uh, and so, yeah, it was our sensing capabilities that helped make that uh, reacquisition possible. So here at the state of the space industrial base, you know, I've been listening to a lot of the um, commercial uh, representatives here. And one thing that is certain is that everyone is looking far and beyond, um, not just Leo, not Mio. Um, not just geo, but really beyond into the future. And so I was kind of wondering, what do you want from the future? Where, are we, where do you think that we need to be going? Uh, I think one of the major themes here is the uh, perception of this economic expansion um, uh, within the, what was being referred to as the cislunar uh, economy, that is deriving economic value and, and space operations between here and the moon. Uh, Certainly, we were briefed uh, through uh, Damrata Goswami's uh, excellent presentation on the strategic planning that is in place through the centralized government in China, uh, looking into making uh, their dominance in space, and particularly in the space between here and the moon, uh, the intent of deriving up to a $10 trillion economy uh, in the 2040s and 50s uh, from that. And you know, one of the things I think we'd like to help uh, enable uh, and help lead uh, is you know our response to that. How do we make sure that uh, a future in the cislunar economy is uh, executed with uh, U.S. leadership uh, in mind, with U.S. principles and core values, uh, with the way that we conduct business? Uh, and I think so. There's definitely some uh, organizations here who are focused on uh, being able to derive uh, data, services, products, resources uh, that help make that happen and, and help put the key infrastructure in place uh, to do that. The sense that I'm getting is that the commercial space sector is the one, though, that's that's really coming up with the vision and trying to push a vision, push the envelope out to the moon and, and possibly even beyond. I mean, what are you hearing from your colleagues and what are you hearing from the government representatives that are here? Uh, it, it varies depending on if the the primary function is, is an S&T, a science and technology function, or if it's an economic function, or even just a strategic uh, role uh, in, in all of that. I think you hear a lot about the financial tools and the other things that need to be put in place uh, to, uh, to enable this to be possible. I think there is uh, a growing will throughout the industrial community. Uh, to be able to go do this, but they are looking for that leadership. I know in this conference last year, there was the discussion of the need for a, what's referred to as a North Star vision, uh, a national level uh, strategy, put that goal post out there, give us a challenge and let's go execute and, and make that happen. Uh, and, and that hasn't happened um, economically and with, with this purpose uh, yet. Uh, for some time, you might point to the original space race um, but it really took uh, 
inspiring the entire kind of American populace uh, to decide that that was something we really did want to achieve as a nation. Uh, and I think that's something that we're trying to figure out how to do again, right? If, does it take a, a figure like a, like a President Kennedy uh, level at the top to kind of bring this together? Um, or can we do this as a coalition of kind of like-minded uh, industrial partners who can, who can go out there and, and derive value uh, in our own way, kind of in a bottom-up approach. Um, but one of, the, one of the things I spoke to on the panel, um, just from my own experience, is just the need to inspire the average person to understand just how much space and the expansion of space means to them. Um, it, it's, you know, there might be historical analogs to things like the Western Gold Rush and uh, things that have... Uh, occurred in history that, you know, empowered uh, our nation to kind of take that next leap. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, what we need to do here is, is take that next leap, right? We took our first leap 50 years ago, you know, more than 50 years ago. It's, you know, talking about Neil Armstrong in, in 1969, but the last time we set foot on the moon was before I was born. And there's a lot of people reaching their mid-career level who don't, can't speak from experience what it was like to have success on the moon. Uh, and certainly, I don't want to see a future where the next boots that we see are Tychonauts instead of U.S. astronauts. You know, certainly we are 100% behind Artemis and Gateway and, and, and those things. But what are all of the other things we can bring to bear if we truly unleash the available partnerships that are within industry uh, to move forward to make that happen. It's been described here that the centralized planning and the long-term strategic uh, capabilities in China potentially get given advantage or, or, or are something to be admired just because you can stick to a plan. And certainly they've been able to meet their milestones over a long period of time. But empowering the, the diversity of thought and the amount of different perspectives and, and the inclusive nature with which we could all go to the moon together would be a pretty amazing result if we could, you know, get the population behind that as a vision. Uh, again, you know, uh, I referenced uh, when Werner von Braun and Walt Disney collaborated to tell the first stories of what it would even be like to live and work in space. We have such power today to tell that story even more, but I think we need to do a better job telling it so that we can convince more people that this is paramount in, in you know, life within the 2020s. This will maybe be a decade of you know, significant change in, in the space domain, uh, significant expansion. We're seeing that with the mega constellations. We'll, we'll see that as we go out beyond geo. You'll start seeing these uh, steps that we take to start you know, establishing a, a sustained presence on the moon. But... I think it's not just a project of, of interest. It needs to be something that is, you know, the intent is to inspire everybody the way we did when we, you know, really engaged that first space race, you know, 50 to 60 years ago. And do you feel the pressure? Because we all know that it takes time to actually set up a space program, a, a, a launch system. I mean, we've been watching, you know, the Artemis program, you know, ramp up. 
and move along, dates get missed, et cetera, et cetera. But the Chinese do seem to be, you know, hitting all their deadlines. And their plan is to actually have a lunar base that is human rated, as in they, they want their taikonauts. Um, and folks from the Strategic Support Force, which is the People's Liberation Army, our taikonauts, um, they're on the moon. What's the concern for the um, commercial community or for the industrial community? Uh, I'm not sure what, what that concern is. There are certainly um, companies that we speak to uh, who are uh, dedicated and certainly ready to move fast uh, and and you know, definitely aware of the risks involved uh, and who can enable both uh, economical and risk-conscious solutions to to achieving that. And certainly at ExoAnalytic, we would be talking about providing uh, spacecraft monitoring and support services, whether that was from ground or sensors or sensors on board those spacecraft uh, potentially in the future, so that the decision-making process could be done in as formed a manner as possible. Are we are we moving fast enough? Are we are we focused in in the right way to meet the challenge? You know, I, I, we could certainly be more focused, and we can certainly um, move faster. And I, th- I think we need to elevate the priority of this, uh, and we'll see the the, requ- the necessary uh, resourcing and, and other things kind of come up there. It, it has to be more than just space people talking to space people about why we think this is, you know, an important strategic competition, right? It needs to it needs to be adopted throughout, you know, uh, at a national level to, 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 for, to understand what the potential implications are in terms of competing in the kind of the economic regime in the future. In terms of, you know, what the concern is, it's, you know, doing too little too late or not taking this seriously enough to, you know, to, to mobilize uh, what we need to do. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Uh, this is something that, you know, we've, we've been studying pretty closely and, and writing about uh, ourselves and, you know, trying to figure out what our role is in helping, uh, helping the companies that want to do more uh, in, in deeper space and, and, and in farther orbits do that. You know, we're proud of how we've helped out uh, in the on-orbit servicing community uh, most recently, and, th- and that's helped us learn lessons. And, for example, you mentioned being able to understand the events of SJ-21 and other space events like that. Th- there's a lot more room for us to contribute uh, in enabling these more ambitious missions and, and activities as, as they become manifest and as we step out farther uh, and move out there. You know, it's been at least 40 years, as far as I'm aware, that we've had any human presence above LEO. Uh, and it will be interesting to, to see how we support that as we, as we march out farther again. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.